Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening in the timeless present. And uh, thank you very much for tuning in to The Green Majority. See, I thought it was The Truman Show based on that intro. There are many levels of consciousness and awareness. Stefan will be interviewing later in this show. Amelia Meister from Some of Us talking about how they are organizing shareholders to take on uh, not just to take on the big banks mostly in this conversation, but we talk on sort of the way their activism works across places, uh, but some serious movement uh, in regards to their work with banks, actually some good news at the end of the show. It is Pisces season, so the scales of the fish are just sliding against one another. Just smack those fish. Uh, that's weird. Abundance. Wonderful, beautiful abundance. Did we tell people that they're listening to The Green Majority? The International Energy Agency is reporting that CO2 emissions dropped by 5.8% worldwide for the whole of 2020, but by the end of the year, they were actually 2% higher than at the end of 2019, meaning COVID-19 will not have helped us reach peak emissions unless governments start spending wholeheartedly on Earth-friendly economic recovery plans rather than reverting back to the old standard that has reached into nature and pulled out all these catastrophes nuclear weapons, the climate crisis, and the new coronavirus pulled possibly from the body of a bat. Regarding nations' emissions commitments under the Paris Agreement, the UN has put out a report highlighting the woefully ridiculous scenario we find ourselves in. The NDC synthesis report is meant to show the status of emissions pledges leading up to COP26, when the countries in the Paris Agreement will meet again to, ideally, discuss how we are going to cooperatively reduce global greenhouse gas emissions. This is the initial version, with another one to be released closer to November. The initial report looks at the emissions plans from the 75 countries that submitted updated targets by the end of last year. It notes that countries collectively need to reduce emissions by 45% of 2010 levels by 2030 in order to avoid an unknowable series of global cataclysms. The report finds that these updated pledges will reduce these countries' emissions by just 0.5% of 2010 levels by 2030. This means, of course, that almost nothing is happening, and we are still throwing ourselves toward untold ecological disaster. The 2015 agreement stipulated that parties increase their emissions targets every five years. The COVID pandemic delayed this and postponed the annual meeting by a year. Canada's current pledge is 30% below 2005 levels by 2030, which is not high enough, and we do not uh, even know how we'll get there. The United States is supposed to announce its updated 2030 targets by April 22nd, when Joe Biden will host an international climate summit. Reuters notes that only two of the 18 largest emitters have pledged a meaningful increase in their targets. Many countries have plans to reach net-zero carbon emissions by 2050, but few have shorter-term plans showing how they'll actually get there. 
a country that is net zero rather than real zero, will of course still be producing emissions, but will at the same time be trying to suck those emissions back out of the air. They are betting that carbon capture technology will have advanced enough by then to make this possible. It has been emphasized many times by people whose job it is to think about these things that our COVID-19 economic recovery plans will determine what path we take, whether we will properly transform or whether we will perpetuate the systems that are destroying us. This comes as the Potsdam Institute published a study in the journal Nature Geoscience showing that the system that cycles water through the Atlantic is now the weakest it has been in over 1,000 years. Warm, salty water has historically flowed northwest from Africa over to the Americas where it heats up even more and heads towards Europe before cooling down near Greenland, losing salt and snaking back south. The Gulf Stream system was relatively stable until the late 1800s and has in the past few decades become much weaker, likely linked to global warming. The change could lead to greater sea level rise on America's east coast, worse winter storms in Europe, and worse droughts and heat during European summers. Speaking to the annual conference of insurance professionals in Britain last month, the chief executive of the UK's Environment Agency, Sir James Bevan, totally freaked out, saying that flood levels in the UK were getting worse than the worst-case scenario, and, quote, much more extreme weather will kill more people through drought, flooding, wildfires, and heat waves than most wars have. The net effects will collapse ecosystems slash crop yields, take out the infrastructure that our civilization depends on, and destroy the basis of the modern economy and modern society. That is why our response needs to match the scale of the challenge. Over in the U.S., meanwhile, attendees of the annual Conservative Political Action Conference were greeted by a shiny gold statue of a boyish Donald Trump wearing star-spangled shorts and holding a fairy wand. Trump declared at the conference that he was the future of the Republican Party, that he had won the election, and that he might run again in 2024. This is in contrast to the Trump rallies leading up to the January 6th insurrection, at which some speakers said that the new right might dissociate from the GOP. Senator Ted Cruz gushed over Trump, raged against the media, and said that America was now being run by radical socialists. Perhaps this is because Bernie Sanders is trying to get large companies to pay their minimum wage workers enough to survive. The Trump years, however, that Ted Cruz seems to have loved so much, were also bad for miners and fossil fuel workers. The Lancet Journal recently reported, quote, The Trump administration's weakening of mine health and safety standards and mine enforcement programs has led to increased disease and injury deaths among workers employed in mining, quarrying, and oil and gas extraction. Between 2016 and 2019, the annual number of environmentally and occupationally related deaths increased by more than 22,000, reversing 15 years of steady progress. New research published by the U.S. National Academy of Sciences is showing that an entire third of the Midwestern U.S. Corn Belt has lost the kind of rich soil depended upon by farmers. 
this has reduced the amount of food they produce by around 6%. The global ecological crisis will make resources scarcer and cause more and more people to leave their homes and countries. Racist, violent plutocracy is consolidating in the U.S., and we are not immune to it in Canada. Climate change will make the fascist impulse more appealing, and we have to constantly uphold each other's common dignity as we heal ourselves and our ecosystems. Whether or not we are really missing this moment in terms of taking action uh, on both responding to COVID-19 and tackling climate change. You know, I don't think we will know this until you see the final version of the bill that will eventually pass, I presume, in the States. You know, I don't think we'll know this until we get, you know, a year into the work that's being done in the Canadian context, you know, including the, the mo most recently announced Net Zero Advisory Board, which is supposed to keep Canada, hold, hold Canada accountable to some of these shorter term targets, which are super important. Like, it means so little to say you'll do something by 2050. Like, if I tell you that I'm going to read a book by 2050, that means nothing to you. And that should be the exact same thing as we take climate targets. Like, if, if the time horizon is so long that anything could happen in between those two times, you are not giving yourself as a government any responsibility to do anything. And that is fundamentally the problem. We've seen so much good words coming out of, you know, whether it's Europe about what they're going to do. In the more recent updates coming out of China to peak emissions sooner than expected. But all of these things are, are, are moot unless we start seeing real action right now. And I, to me, that's the biggest question. You know, will we see real action in the next two years? Because the longer you wait for things, the more money is being sucked up by the oil companies, the more money is being sucked out of the solutions, and the deeper and deeper curve you need in regards to emission reduction now. So it gets harder and harder and harder to make these cuts. Like if we had started in the 1990s when we knew this was happening, it wouldn't have really impacted people's lives because he would have been slowly building things out. But now we're in this 10-year time frame, so the response has to be much more drastic which makes it even more important that we do it start now because if it's we are down to five years you know then we're talking about even more drastic responses and and at some point you run out of options the delay in climate action is in fact very intentional on the part of um a, a large number of let, let's be frank conservative politicians and um folks who who partner themselves and align themselves with industry and and those oil and gas industries which stand to financially benefit from delayed action but what I was sort of thinking, and maybe this is just like a result of like my melted COVID brain, but like saying that we will reach a certain target in 2050 kind of means nothing. Saying you're going to do something by 2050 means nothing. And it reminds me of this episode. There's an episode of The Office where you find out that Michael Scott, who's the main kind of lead buffoon on The Office, told children in the third grade at one point that he would pay for their university if they got into college and they're called Scott's Tots. And it's this horrible, horrible episode where he has to go to this school and meet and see these wonderful children who've been working hard for like 10 years to get into university because he promised them he would pay for their college. And he has to tell them, 
I can't afford your college. I'm so sorry I made that promise 10 years ago and then didn't take any steps to be able to fulfill that promise. And it feels like these stupid 2050 pledges are like the most evil, insidious version of Scott's tots. <laughs> and I hate that I'm talking about this episode because I hate it so much. It's so awful. Even to watch this fictionalized man let down this whole class of children. But anyway, that's that's all I could think about when you were talking about that idea that like 2050 pledges with no short term, near term rather, uh, mechanisms or tools being sort of laid out is, is, is for the most part meaningless. I have no reason to trust that any given government or any given organization is going to live up to that 2050 target. But then also, yeah, this idea that uh, I, I, we don't need to spend too much time dwelling on the advisory panel or, or its implications for C12 that it's connected to. But I do just want to sort of, uh, there are so many best practices from so many countries and regions all around the world that we know what good, strong, real climate action and, and solid policy looks like. And specifically with something like this advisory body, I'm not going to critique it too much for a variety of reasons. I don't actually think it's all bad. There's some really solid folks on that panel that are going to do really, really good work through it. But unfortunately, it's it's not set up to succeed in the way that the UK's climate committee was set up to succeed in the sense that the UK's climate committee was, um, I can't actually even remember the number of people on it. The number of people on the committee itself isn't that big. It's like 10 people or something like that. And yes, they're all issue area experts, and that's fantastic. Similar to, to the issue area experts that are on this net, net, net zero advisory board. But the difference is the amount of money and the amount of resourcing that went into that went into the UK committee and their mandate. And the UK committee, it's like, say it's 10 people on that committee, like I said, they have a team of staff that's either 30 or 35 people who work full time to do the research that is required and the modeling that is required and the work that's required to actually make sure that this that this body is able to to function optimally and the fact that that the canadian equivalent hasn't been given those same resources and hasn't been given that same mandate to really really hold the government's feet to the fire is is disappointing so setting aside the composition setting aside the fact that that you could potentially argue that it's not it's not a scientifically based expert body it's it's a potentially like lived expert body there, there are debates for both of those things in the merits, but it's it's the fact that it isn't resourced the same way that the UK's body wasn't is, is really disappointing because again, we know that it's resulted in a lot of good success for them. So, so looking at a country where you can see the success and you know why they did it, they showed their work. It's not like they just give you a number at the end of the math test and say, I figured it out, trust me. Like they've laid out how they've done it for us. And for us not to heed those lessons is frustrating to say the least. The Swedish car company Volvo has announced that it will be selling only fully electric vehicles by 2030. The European offshoot of Ford says that by the same year, it will only be selling electric vehicles or hybrids. The American company General Motors said last month that they would stop selling gas cars and, and SUVs by 2035, uh, but would continue to make heavy trucks that use gas. GM convinced Trump a little while ago to kill Obama's emissions standards, and now they have turned around and are in fact saying that they will be carbon neutral by 2040. 
Global electric car sales increased 43% in 2020 as batteries are getting cheaper and cheaper, and electric cars are already less expensive than gas cars in some places. Most people don't want to get them because they are afraid they can't travel very far, but that's changing very quickly. The influx of electric vehicles, as well as wind and solar power, is causing a huge boom in lithium mining because lithium is the lightest metal and can also store a lot of energy. Europe, for instance, has been starting to explore lithium deposits in northern and central Portugal with varying degrees of local opposition. The town of Caseras in Spain started resisting a proposed lithium mine last year because it is one of the most beautiful towns in Spain and relies on tourism. But the company Infinity was nonetheless granted a permit in December to go and explore. Lithium mining in Europe involves cutting off the heads of mountains and blasting the earth with dynamite, but in the Lithium Triangle in South America, it is sucked out of the earth in the form of brine. Locals in Chile are arguing that pumping lithium brine out of the ground is causing desertification and could contaminate the water. Our green transition, therefore. If we want to keep consuming as much as we already are, is going to continue exploiting people and hurting the earth. In the name of green growth, we will still be using economic and military power to take resources from people. In addition to this, electric cars are not even zero carbon because of all the resource extraction and refining we have to do to produce them. Focusing on electric cars also helps governments pretend that things are changing without investing in public transport or cycling or walkable neighborhoods. We're not only burning too much fossil fuel; we're also using a lot more resources every year than the Earth is able to replenish. But even if our only problem was fossil fuel, if we follow the lead of these car companies, we will still not be electrifying transport that much until at least a decade from now. And we'll still, therefore, probably miss this critical window in which we have to reduce our overall emissions by 45%. In a refutation of Bill Gates's recent book about climate change, Jonathan Neal, author of the book *Fight the Fire*, writes that Gates is correct that there isn't enough lithium in the world to electrify absolutely everything as it stands. Gates also says that it is too expensive, and we therefore have to wait for technology to give us more options and for innovation to drive prices down. But this will mean we cannot reduce emissions in time to stop truly disastrous global warming, according to climate scientists. Neil says that this is only the case if profitability is our main concern. In other words, Gates is showing that if we have to wait for investors to be able to make money off saving the planet, it will be too late. Neil argues that if we focus on giving people jobs to do, we can reduce emissions quickly, starting now, while helping each other, even if it means that we have to work with slightly worse technology. One example he provides is that we could employ a lot more truck drivers by using smaller electric trucks carrying less stuff, rather than waiting until we can replace big gas trucks with big electric ones. Thank. Capitalists of the world and technocrats of the world want the solution to be shiny and new, like you know, a new iPhone or whatever. And the reality is, the best solutions are solutions that have been around for over a hundred years. Mass transit is very obviously the best way to move lots of people in a low carbon way, unquestionably. 
high-speed rail. Trains have existed for longer than cars, and yet people are still like, we need to wait for something else. No, we have trains. There's just so many more ways and so many options to do this. That we're, and they're just old things. They're just, they're, that's the only issue with them. They're just not new ideas, they're old ideas. Let people cycle places, let people use mass transit. And, you know, and if you need to understand grid batteries, let's go back to last week's show and use natural batteries like, you know, balloons and harbors or pushing water up a hill and it come back down instead of chemical batteries because they work at grid scale. Like we have the solutions, we can't just keep waiting to, until we have a nuclear powered plane and that's your solution. You just can't do that. Part of Joe Biden's climate plan is investing in carbon capture technology. This means capturing CO2 as it leaves a fossil fuel plant and pumping it into the ground to make it easier to extract more oil and gas. It might also mean direct air capture, meaning CO2 would be sucked out of the air and stored in the ground, or in some cases turned into new fuel. Some of this technology, or so I've read, I have no idea, could be useful in curbing certain industrial emissions for which there is net yet no other solution other than shutting industry down entirely. Many governments have started to invest in such technology, and we are all relying on it in some fashion in order to reach net zero. But a study published last year in the journal Biophysical Economics and Resource Quality shows that such technology as it currently exists actually produces more CO2 emissions than it prevents. It helps the fossil fuel industry greenwash itself. Even sucking CO2 out of the air and storing it underground is so energy intensive that powering it with renewables doesn't currently make sense when we can use that electricity to power homes instead. Capturing CO2 out of the air, therefore, only makes sense if we have already decarbonized everything else and are only trying to take historical emissions back, and if it is treated like a public service, just cleaning up the atmosphere and storing the carbon back underground. There's absolutely no way that it's going to be cheaper than just not burning the oil in the first place. There's no version of direct air capture, which is somehow a better idea than having it already. You know, you know where carbon is currently successfully trapped underground? In oil. There does not need to be the world where we decide to dig it up, burn it, put it in the atmosphere, capture it again, and put it back, back down. At this point, that whole system, unnecessary. We can just leave it there. There is some carbon still in the atmosphere that we need to pull out of the atmosphere, but like there is no world where we should be expecting ourselves right now to be pulling coal or fossil fuels out of the ground, burning it just to catch it again in five years. There's no way that's cheaper. We need to be careful as a movement about how we are um, discussing and advocating for technologies like direct air capture and, and CCS because it's these are technologies that um, are being developed, have been developed for years, and do have money and interest behind them. I genuinely don't think the environmental movement needs to advocate for them. They already have the attention of folks who have money and folks who have time to invest in them. 
we don't need to daylight them because I think the more we discuss technologies like this, the more we discuss things like renewable natural gas as a meaningful solution, quote unquote, renewable natural gas. I really hate that phrase, but like it, the classification, renewable natural gas, the more we talk about things like that, the more we legitimize it, the more we we put it out into the discourse as a viable option. Yeah, like it won't be ready. It won't be ready for the next 20 years and we have 10. No, right? no, exactly. And, and there was a, I, I'm not going to like name names or drag anybody, but like there was a, there's a, a body within Canada that put out a paper several weeks ago, maybe even a couple months ago now that was looking at sort of like, um, pathways to net zero in those different scenarios. And they talked about sort of like, they, they framed it within sort of like betting terms, like safe bets and like not safe bets and those wild cards. And it was, it was surprising to me what they classified as a safe bet and what they classified as a wild card and, and the degree to which they, seemed to imply or did directly imply that we would be relying on these on these technologies going forward and it's like it's hard to say because that might be true to a degree i'm still not entirely sold on the fact that like renewable natural gas will be a stepping stone on the way to net zero but the fact that this is like a trusted climate group within Canada, putting that out into the discourse is I think potentially damaging because it allows those fossil fuel organizations who utilize renewable natural gas and greenwash with renewable natural gas to turn around and be like, well, this is a technology that in some ways was advocated for by this organization. So we can't be that bad. So, so I think we just obviously like, I'm sure the average listener for this show isn't actually like working for a climate organization, but I do think we need to be really, really careful about how we conduct these conversations in public facing venues because it has real consequence. British Columbia is officially moving ahead with a Site C dam, which is now costing $16 billion, twice as much as originally stated. They thought briefly that it might be structurally unsound, but are now apparently of the belief that it should be okay. Provincial liberals are saying, we started the project, but now it's on the NDP because they championed it. And the provincial Greens are saying it will kill farmland, biodiversity, and a whole river system while making electricity that is too expensive. If uh, the province cancels the dam at this point, they will possibly have lost around $10 billion, and electricity prices could go up. The West Moberly First Nations are still suing the government to try to prevent the dam because they say that it is being done without their consent, is in violation of their treaty rights, and will destroy important land. It is the third dam on the Peace River. It has recently been reported that by the end of 2020, ExxonMobil had dropped its estimate of the oil it will be able to develop worldwide from 22.44 billion barrels to 15.2 billion barrels and had decided that almost all of its oil sands reserves were no longer recoverable. Exxon's Canadian subsidiary, Imperial Oil, also dropped its oil sands estimates by a billion barrels. This is because of the crash of the price of oil and the high cost of developing oil sands crude. Exxon could go back on all this if prices rise again. 
This comes as the company behind the government-owned Trans Mountain Expansion Pipeline, which is of course an oil sands pipeline, is asking the Canadian energy regulator not to divulge the names of its insurers because it is afraid that climate activists will target those insurers and convince them to stop insuring the project. Transmountain had trouble finding insurers last year and has had to pay more money as a result. A police officer in Vancouver, meanwhile, is under review after having viciously manhandled indigenous protesters who had been occupying the offices of the insurance group AIG for three days to convince people to stop insuring TMX. A video shows an officer treating the protesters brutally, who were a group of indigenous youth with the braided warriors, who were from the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh territories. They stated, quote, We were violently thrown to the ground, dragged across floors and down stairways, pulled by the hair and braid, thrown to a surface covered in glass, strangled in a chokehold, or dragged face down on concrete. As we record this right now, the braided warriors uh, are currently blocking the port at Clark and Hastings uh, in BC to protest the fact uh, that one of their elders, Stacy Gallagher, uh, was arrested and was being held for 90 days. What I understand is that the, because of this protest, it's been going on since yesterday. We record this on Wednesday. The protest began on Tuesday. Gallagher has been granted bail. By the time, by the time recording, the indigenous uh, protesters uh, from uh, the Braided Warriors are still holding that space. So, if you can support them in any way, please, please do. If BC has taught us anything, and this is, I think, for us as Canadians more widely, it is that passing UNDRIP, the the UN Declaration of uh, Rights of Indigenous People, does not guarantee that we will take this seriously. The, the fact that Site C Dam is continuing, the fact that, you know, that, that these warriors fighting TMX are being treated so terribly, even at the same time as Exxon is sort of trying, Exxon and other oil companies are pulling out of the oil sands, shows that this country will continue to do this unless it is stopped by its citizens. No set of laws, no set of passing will be enough. They are, it may be a good step or two, but it's not going to be enough unless we ourselves say no more.
Thank you. That was the song Near Mint by the band Holy F***. Thank you very much. And now, back to the Green Majority. Here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps on one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country, or maybe on the podcast, which can be found at greenmajority.ca, or anywhere podcasts are found. I'm Seven Hostetter, and I'm here with an interview with Amelia Meister, Senior Campaigner and Shareholder Activism Coordinator from Some of Us. Welcome, and thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. So let's start super broad in regards to both what Some of Us does and then really what you do in regards to, to shareholder activism. So, so what are your theories of change? Yeah, so Some of Us is a global organization, primarily digital, and we work in corporate accountability. So working to prevent corporations from behaving badly. And one of the ways that we do that is we have members from all over the world and they, many of them are shareholders in the companies that we campaign against. And so we work to represent our members and use their shares to get into the annual general shareholder meetings of corporations to submit shareholder proposals and resolutions that challenge corporations to change their corporate structures to have better policies that create a better world. So that's, that's our big theory of change is, is harnessing people power to create change. Awesome. For those people who may not be as aware about how shareholders even work, you know, within this larger piece of it. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, I'm curious if you could sort of break that down. Like, does every publicly traded company have a shareholder meeting? How do people with shares influence the policies that are put forward by these, by these corporations? For sure. So, you know, in Canada and the US, every publicly traded company has shares Anyone can buy shares. So you could go and you could say, I buy one share or I buy 3,000 shares, depending on how much money you have. And there are regulations about when you own shares, how you can engage with the company. So every shareholder has the right to vote with their shares once a year at the annual general meeting. And they can vote on things like the appointment of the board of directors, the appointment of auditors. And then if you own enough shares, you can file a resolution where there then everybody who has shares can vote on that resolution. And so the resolutions can be anything from, you know, a lot of it is policy-based. So you know, one shareholder resolution that we filed several years ago was to uh, have the CEO of Facebook be a different person than the chairman of the board of Facebook, because right now they are both Mark Zuckerberg. So Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO, is his boss is the chairman of the board, who is Mark Zuckerberg. So <laughs> It means that there's very little accountability within uh, that corporation. So some corporations like Facebook, unfortunately, are publicly traded, but they're what is called a controlled corporation because the CEO 
usually, or the, the owners will have controlling shares. So they'll own 50% or more of the shares. So independent shareholders have very little influence of what happens at the company, but most corporations aren't controlled. And so shareholders have a lot more power. Awesome. So let's talk about the shareholders and, and how you harness that sort of power of community. Can, can you tell us a couple of stories of, of some of your wins so to give people sort of a sense of, of how this works? Yeah, for sure. So last year, we approached shareholders of TD Bank in Canada, and we had, I think, eight different shareholders who we worked with. And these were people just regular folks from all over Canada who were really concerned about the issue and they wanted to jump through all the hoops necessary. And they, uh, we filed a shareholder proposal specifically asking for the bank to create a time-bound and quantitative, it's all very technical, greenhouse gas reduction plan for their lending, which basically is in normal speak is reduce your financed emissions, stop giving loans to fossil fuel companies. But you can't say that in a shareholder proposal. You have to, you have to go about it a little bit differently. And so that shareholder proposal didn't gain a passing vote. It only got 18% of the vote, but most shareholder proposals get 3% or less of the vote. And so 18% was really enough for the corporation to start taking the issue very seriously. And in uh, November of this year, right before we filed the same shareholder proposal again, TD made an announcement that they were going to pull out of funding in the Arctic, that they were going to join a climate financing group called PCAF, which is an industry standard for you know, climate financing and, and getting out of funding fossil fuels, and also that they were going to create a plan to stop funding the fossil fuel industry. So, and we were told a year and a half before that there was no way TD would ever do this. And we tried a lot of sort of traditional activism. And then when we ended up in the, you know, using shareholder activism, we got a lot more change a lot faster. So, you know, that's, that's one example. And, you know, we have another example of getting Google, a colleague worked on a shareholder proposal to get Google to, to allow VPNs in China. So that Chinese activists who were organizing against violations of Uyghurs' rights in China would not be monitored by the government and prevented from doing activism. And so, you know, it was a really massive human rights win for China. And, you know, we had tried many different ways of engaging Google. And again, when we used the shareholder proposal, it really got the attention and was able to make major change. Awesome. So I'm curious, it's more of a your personal opinion bit than maybe than anything else, but it strikes me that a part of the value of this action is that these companies like these big meetings to sort of just be boasting and being excited about what they're doing. And so the concept that anyone might be able to come in and sort of be like, hey, fix your stuff here 
kind of ruins the vibe and a bit of me wonders like is that part of what works that you're actually talking to people who are like look we just wanted to have a good time and actually explain all the wins we're doing and all the money we're making you and, and here you are criticizing us and it's like it's a way to speak maybe directly to power from people they have to listen to and so i'm curious if that sort of public embarrassment in this setting specifically is part of what works Yeah, I would say companies care very much, much more than what the public thinks of them. They care what their shareholders think of them, because if they have mass divestment, that causes their shares to drop, it causes their profitability to drop, and ultimately it costs the CEO's job or salary, Uh, and they like making those millions of dollars. So yeah, as you said, these uh, shareholder meetings are usually a time to boast and often shareholder, the most effective shareholder proposals talk about risks to shareholder value. So, you know, either risks to the reputation of the company, which can cause shareholder value to decline, or in the case of financing fossil fuels, risk to shareholder value in that you're dumping billions of dollars into a declining industry that is wrecking the environment and is ultimately not very profitable right now or in the foreseeable future. And so when you point out these risks to the broader shareholder population in front of, you know, and then the CEOs and the executives kind of have to justify to their shareholders why they're taking these risks. And I think that's a a position that no executives want to be in. And they do negotiate very, there's always negotiation before the shareholder proposal gets published, before it gets voted on, where companies try really hard to get you to not have the shareholder proposal. They offer a lot of carrots, like, what about this? What about if we do this? Because they really don't want anything to go to vote. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So let's zero in a little bit because a couple of weeks ago, uh, we had on Plant Climate Pledge Canada on the show to talk about Bank Switch, which of course is a external and well, customer led move. So similar, but not exactly the same. I'm wondering if, if you can talk more about if you have any more upcoming or other work you're doing in regards to uh, t- taking on the big banks. So right now we're in a, an interesting position in that we in the last six months have been working with TD Bank, Scotiabank and RBC on creating a plan to get out of funding fossil fuels. And right now we have some a very ambitious net zero commitment from you know, net zero from tw- by 2050 from TD Bank, but no sort of concrete plans yet on how they're going to get there. Scotiabank will likely soon announce that they are also going to be making a plan. We don't know what their targets are going to be, uh, but we have pressured them to make a plan. And RBC, we hear in the next couple of weeks, will also be making announcements. So it's very interesting because the in the last few months, the Canadian banking industry has really started taking their role in climate change much more seriously and seeing that the trends in the industry, uh, especially starting in, in Europe, are really shifting. 
And we're seeing massive investors like BlackRock making some pretty lofty statements, whether they're not whether or not they're backed up by by action. But you know, banks start because they are, you know, BlackRock is a big investor in banks, you know. So uh, you know, you have to they have to take that into consideration. So we're seeing a lot of shifts happen. There was a couple weeks back where I felt like every day I was coming into work and something new was happening in climate finance. And so in terms of what plans are, you know, we're looking now at, we got the Canadian banks to shift slightly, you know, make these 2050 net zero commitments, you know, say they're going to make a plan. And now the work is, what is that plan? And is it actually going to have the impact that we need to not go into a climate catastrophe? And so, you know, our our plans are, how do we hold banks accountable? And how do we make sure these uh, commitments that they're making and these plans that they're making are in line with what the world needs. And so what that looks like is it's constantly shifting because the plans are constantly shifting. Right now, things are moving very quickly, much, much more quickly than they ever have at banks. And it's wonderful that there are these consumer-led, you know, bank switch And we also see like university campuses doing divestment campaigns and there's some work to try and get those campaigns to include banks that are funding fossil fuels. There's also work, lots of partner organizations are doing work with pensions like the Ontario Teachers Pension to try and get pensions to get out of of banks and fossil fuel industry. And so there's, yeah, it's just, it's very, a very exciting time. I'm not sure if that actually answered your question, but I- <laughs> it does, it does. And I actually have a, a, a question, which if you don't have answers to, it's not anywhere, but it's, I rarely do I get a chance to talk to someone with your intimate knowledge of this question. And it's something that I've thought about and tried to figure out for the last couple of years, which is specifically, if what BlackRock is doing is helping, <laughs> because the last three years, I think it's been their CEO, Larry Fink, has come out and said something, a bunch of very good words on climate change uh, and about how we have to get seriously. And then I've read reports afterwards, but like after you look back at it, that, that they haven't yet seemingly moved too much into the actually using their weight as a shareholder to push for this. And so, yeah, in your experience, and given that you're in this sort of field, is this having an impact? So I think you're right that BlackRock has not uh, really sort of put their money where their mouth is, so to speak. We're not seeing them voting on climate proposals that, you know, they, as an, a massive investor in many corporations, they could have a, a big impact on shareholder proposals that happen. They could also be doing divestment. They could be engaging with the corporations a lot more. And we're not seeing that as much. But what I think those announcements do is they signal that a change is coming. And I think that in some ways it's this dance 
of BlackRock says this thing and every corporation that BlackRock is invested in then scrambles. What do we need to do so that BlackRock, we're not going to, you know, piss off BlackRock? I see that BlackRock could be doing a lot more. I also see that without these sorts of major announcements and without the, you know, without these nice words, we probably wouldn't be as far along with a lot of other campaigns and getting a lot of other banks and corporations to move on climate. So is it completely useless? No. <laughs> you know, is it easily quantifiable on what impact we've it's actually had? Also no. So I can't say one way, but that's my opinion is that these announcements, they are good. And it also gives people a point of accountability. And I think more and more corporate accountability is becoming a big thing. You know, shareholders, investors, they want accountability and consumers want to buy from companies that say the right thing, but also do the right thing. And, uh, and I see that that's like a shift in, you know, we're kind of trying to move into like ESG capitalism, which is, you know, the like good environmental, social and governance policies under capitalism, which, you know, is better than not, but maybe not the ideal system either. That makes sense. And, and thank you for that clarity. I, I, it's been something I've literally had in my head for, for years now. So are there any campaigns you're working on right now that you're, that you're excited about? I mean, I have to say, I've, I've mentioned it many times before, these banking campaigns, working with TD, working with Scotiabank and RBC to push forward, you know, more progressive climate plans. You know, six months ago, no bank in Canada had a plan to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And by the end of March, it looks like three of the banks are, will have made commitments to make that plan and by the end of 2021. So by the end of the year, it is likely that we will have plans from the three major banks, which also happen to be in the top 10 of the largest financers of uh, fossil fuels in the world. And that, that's my little baby, my little campaign baby. <laughs> so I, I feel very excited about it. And it's really, it's very exciting work. And, uh, you know, there's still a lot more work. You know, that is the, the plan is kind of the baby step that needs to be taken. But as the leading banks in Canada, which is a petro state, it, it's pretty impressive. We're, we're one of the largest producers of oil. Oil is a very big issue in our economy, in our politics, in our banking industry, in every part of Canadian life. And I think a lot of people in Canada don't recognize that. And I think a lot of people in the world don't necessarily recognize like Canada's unique and hugely impactful role in uh in climate change yeah for sure and congratulations that is huge and obviously Thanks. worth celebrating that's amazing 
And so I guess my, my last question is sort of how uh, our listeners can support you and your work getting more of these types of wins. So how can folks get involved and, and support your work? Yeah, wonderful. That is a really great question. So I would say head on down to someofus.org. You can find us on Facebook at Some of Us, find us on Instagram at Some of Us or Twitter at Some of Us. And specifically, if you're interested in these campaigns and you have shares in banks, <laughs> um, or if you just want to get involved more, uh, join our mailing list. And, and you will find, if you're in Canada, you will find out about what's happening and what opportunities are available. And, uh, and you can always email me if you have more questions. My email is Amelia at some sum of us.org. And I always love hearing what people have to say and ideas that they have for ways that we can better hold banks accountable for their role in climate chaos. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. Keep up the incredible work. And yeah, we'd we'll love to have you back on maybe when, when these things come to a little more fruition. Thanks so much. All right, listeners, if you have stuck with us this whole time and you've listened to the whole show, we would truly appreciate it if you would take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever it happens to be that you're listening. Rating and reviewing helps not only spread the word about the show, but it allows you to pass along to us your valuable feedback, which we promise to take into consideration going forward. Thanks so much for listening to The Green Majority. We'll see you next week. It's not easy.